All right. So I love doing interviews and I know everybody who listens to podcasts loves interviews. Okay. Maybe that's not entirely true, but I feel like we're coming up on the year or status update changing from it's complicated to pandemic status. If you were to set a relationship status between the world and COVID-19. So we're still in that relationship milestone, I guess. And I feel like I wanted to do this episode maybe a year ago, but I wasn't in the right headspace. So sometimes you needed a push and a nudge from a friend. And in this case, more than a friend, which we'll get into real quick, because this is an interview style, but not really an interview style. It's it's a co-host. I have a co-host, a guest, and hopefully we'll be back in the future. So why don't you introduce yourself to the people? Sure. My name is Meredith Whitaker. I have known you for a long time now, and I'm excited to chat today about N95 masks, respirators, those cool things, which I have experience with in the context of working in a lab. So I recently finished my PhD in immunology and microbial pathogenesis, which is just a lot of gobbledygook for, I love bacteria. I love learning how the immune system works and how those two things work together. And I specifically study tuberculosis, which involves working in a biosafety level three lab. And we can get into what that really means, but it just means that I needed a respirator when I was working with bacteria. I now work as a medical writer. Science communication is something that I care a lot about. And so I've obviously been really into Ken's podcast for that reason. I love the uh, the concept of medutainment. And yeah, I'm excited to chat today. But we also should probably disclose the fact that we're both related. Da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> We are cousins. We are actually family. We are we always we always hashtag stuff. We are cousins, hashtag cousins who are also friends. But the funny thing with us is that we actually grew up literally on opposite ends of the country. I was in the southwest, you're in the northeast. Majority of our lives, we only really saw each other probably during the summer for our family reunion sort of stuff. Yeah, and even that was like rare. Uh, just to like because to make the like cross country trip was always like a big deal. So but we are we are linked not only by blood, but by a lot of shared experiences that maybe in a future podcast we can relay. But over the past, I would say probably like five to 10 years, really, we actually like started reconnecting, quote unquote, because we were always connected. But I guess due to life experiences on both of our ends, which, again, probably another topic that we could explore at a different time. But it's interesting with how you're relationships change within your own family member and their dynamics. And long story short, we've definitely become closer. She's actually made her first trip out to Arizona uh, not too long ago. Well, to uh, me, it doesn't seem like too long ago. Times. In the before times. <laughs> we literally snuck that one in, man. It was like I know Thanksgiving 2019. Yeah, it was. And then it was like a few months quote or whatever, we were able to have a, a modified family reunion for our grandma for her 95th birthday. Um, we're recording this on our, our Aunt Judy's birthday too. So yeah, happy birthday, Aunt Judy. We love you. Family. Yeah. So we are a big Italian family on my mom's side, maternal side. Which is why I specifically say that we are first cousins because in, in our giant family, like everyone's a cousin. Everyone's some kind of cousin, although we usually call them aunt or uncle, but like you and your brother are my only legit normal cousin. 
Yeah, like we have a huge family tree. Maybe that'll be on a Patreon one time about a massive family tree. <laughs> if you, um, if you but, pay this much, you get to become one of our cousins. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that, yes, that has to maybe happen. If you can link through a 23andMe how you've related to our family, you're invited to the family reunion when it's safe. Your producer level. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. You get uh, a producer credit for sure. But it's funny because even though we grew up on different coasts, we ended up both in STEM. Yeah, which I think is so cool. Yeah. And I'm barely older than Dr. Whitaker over here. So we we really, yeah, we've really kind of gone through similar experiences, unfortunate similar experiences, even though we've been on different coasts, which is also kind of spooky. And when the pandemic started, you probably had more insight into what was going on than I did. So even though we both are in STEM, Meredith works in a different sort of realm of medicine versus my side of medicine. And I think it's so cool because this is like the first time I feel like a lot of our uh, knowledge bases have overlapped and in a very tangible, real, and fluid way where it was like, you saw probably the writing on the wall in different ways than maybe I would in a healthcare way from a research and science perspective. So if you kind of want to give a little background, I mean, we both are very well acquainted with an N95, but I feel like you are in a different sense and then I am in a different sense in terms of why we both need it. And I guess we could transition from the before times into pandemic status, our sort of experience with N95s and, and our PPE, our our fun buzzwords uh, for 2020, PPE and N95. But in this podcast, what we're hoping to do is kind of give you guys a, a little bit more of a knowledge base of practical uses, maybe a little bit of a history lesson, although there will be links in the show notes about podcasts that you can listen to and, and different articles to further explore more of the history. Because it's kind of cool, International Women Women's Day is also today on March 8th. And the person that is very much behind the modern day N95 being what it is, was a woman, was Sarah Little Turnbull. So um, shout out to her and her her legacy, because without her modifications to previous prototypes, we probably wouldn't really be alive today, (laughs) a lot of us in doing what we do and with science and medicine. So yeah, we kind of want to give you guys like a informal history lesson. It's not going to be Schoolhouse Rock because I can't sing. I don't know, Meredith. I don't. Uh, I feel like, Mary, you don't sing either. <laughs> yeah, I sing in the car by myself. So we're going to scratch the Schoolhouse Rock, but but we're hoping that you guys get something out of this in terms of what are the differences? What's better? Why do we wear N95s? And maybe even give you a little insight about the world of a P100 because uh, that's what they currently use at one of my my uh, assignment. So yeah, there's a whole world we're going to try and go into over the course of this timeline. (laughs) So yeah, let's knock it out of the park, I guess. So we could talk about sort of our preface in the before times, uh, how we used N95s within our respective professions. So go for it. Cool. So yeah, I worked with tuberculosis, or I should say I worked with the bacteria that causes the disease tuberculosis. So kind of the way we say SARS-CoV-2 virus causes COVID. Mycobacterium tuberculosis, or MTB short, causes tuberculosis. And uh, I always kind of have to remind people that tuberculosis is still a thing. 
a lot of privileged Americans kind of think of it as this thing that like killed all of Edgar Allan Poe's wives. But it's actually... Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, I guess it's because I see it. <laughs> I, I still see it. I'm just like, people don't think it's real? People don't. It's like crazy. A lot of people don't realize that in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, Russia, there's still a lot of TB around. And that actually a lot of the bacteria around now, some of it has become resistant to the antibiotics that we have that are the reason why we don't have much of it. A lot of these places where TB is still a major problem don't necessarily have like a reliable supply of the antibiotics they need or a reliable health infrastructure for distributing those antibiotics. That's, it's a whole another podcast to get, get into all of that. But all this to say that, you know, the bacteria that causes tuberculosis is a pathogen. It's considered a biosafety level three, which there are four biosafety levels. And uh, with four being sort of the most scary, that's your Ebola kind of thing. I was about to say, is that Ebola? Is Ebola BS4? Oh, yes. Um, it's the things where BSL4 is like things that are very serious and we don't have like a reliable treatment for. It'd be really bad if you caught this because it's really, really bad news for you and for everybody else, right? Precisely. Yeah. So, so BSL three for TB is, you know, there there are good options for treating TB, or I shouldn't necessarily say good options, but there are options. So, with biosafety level three and with a something that spreads by aerosolized droplets, which is you know a phrase that I used to have to define that, but now that people hear about COVID, people have probably heard aerosolized droplets, but they still don't understand what it means. If you've seen like the videos of, oh, what's his name? Basically, when he sings, he like sprays so much, <laughs> like the say it, don't spray it kind of thing. He's got particles, particulates. Yes. So like, I mean, the ones that you can like see with the naked eye are like respiratory droplets. But in addition to all those big ones, there's like lots of little tiny things and people who you know study the dynamics of these things could probably tell you about like specific size and all that but but i think of it as you know the things that spray when you cough when you speak that those are your aerosolized droplets and uh that's how tb spread and so basically any aerosolized bacteria is going to be a risk and so uh, to avoid infecting oneself while studying this bacteria, I needed to wear either an N95 or what we called a PAPR, which is a P-A-P-R, and that stands for personal air purification respirator or something. I forget the R. Yeah, I think you're right. It's got its own little fan, baby. You get to have your own little cooling system, you guys. It's pretty nifty. A lot of our bearded and otherwise differently faced friends still have to wear that. Yeah, and I know that actually my old lab, when COVID was sort of, so, you know, my, my lab was based in New York City. And so as they were getting hit with the first wave, probably one of the first times that like we realized this was going to be very serious was when our lab manager was like kind of seeing the writing on the wall and ordering more masks so that like we'd still be able to work. Not really ever imagining a situation in which like the hospitals would also need masks. And sure enough, we ended up actually like our lab donated a lot of our masks to the hospital that was across the street. And then our lab ended up buying 
pepper, like more peppers. We had some for whenever we would do mouse infections. So when we do a mouse infection with tuberculosis so that we can study like the dynamics of the, how the infection occurs and, you know, what happens with particular bacterial mutants in an animal model. We have to make it so that the mice are breathing in aerosolized TB just like a human would. And so that creates aerosols, which you don't want the human, you know. You don't want it to transfer over. Yeah. So because that was sort of like the most serious thing we ever did, like regardless of facial hair status, you wore a pepper for that procedure. No matter what. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense because then you can't, you can't, and we'll talk about this. I mean, an N95 is very good, but it's not infallible. So totally. Yeah. You can wear it wrong. You can. The strap can break. Yeah, Totally. So yeah, but but most of the time I was wearing an N95. I sort of went through like various models over the years, which we can get into. Just off the wait, what was one of your favorites? And like I said, we'll get into some of them. But but what what are your favorites? You know what I'm going to say? It's the 3M. I'll say it's going to be a 3M. (laughs) Uh, Yes, it's the Aura. That one I think it was what like nine two one something. At this point, if you're working within anything in medicine. And I feel like maybe some other industries that you use N95s, you know your faves. And you probably already knew it before the pandemic and you know it even more now because all the supply chains. Which one did you like? The, the, I think it's the 9205. Oh, I like the 8210. It's not my, I, I, it's, it's not bad. That's the one that I used a little bit more frequently. And then we switched to the duckbill. Then we did the Moldex, which ripped up my nose so bad that I still have a little mild scarring on the bridge of my nose. Then we did the 1860 3M. I wore that fella a lot in grad school. Me too. I didn't mind it because it has that little like foam little thing on there. So it's not bad. Or actually, I should say I wore the 1860S. Oh, because your face is a little smaller? Yeah, I am a petite I wore that. <laughs> Even in the face. <laughs> Even in the face. Well, and also I was so nervous in my first like year or so in the lab that I wanted like the tightest the seal. Fuck yeah. possible. Like I wanted it to hurt basically. <laughs> For everything I gave, like in terms of Moldex, like ripping up my face and, and making that seal and breaking down the skin of my nose, I knew I knew there was no chance in hell that I was gonna get any sort of like COVID exposure when that thing was suction cup in my face. So, oh, we've been, sorry, we've been using the Aura 1870 when I first got to the red strap. Gotcha. Yeah. So what's really interesting is, so in, in the lab, the options I had sort of available to me were, we always just said the Aura. I actually didn't even know there was like different models of the Aura. And like numbers, yeah. Yeah, until recently. But that was sort of like the Cadillac of the masks. So. I would agree. Yeah, and it seems to fit the most people. And it, it gives you like a, a really nice fit without hurting your face. I feel like it's more like adjustable, but also secure still at the same time for the most part. No, and it's like really well made. That one's great. Then we also had the duckbill ones in two different sizes. That is last on my list. And some people who are listening, they know exactly what I'm talking about. And then some people are like, what the hell are you talking about? 
I'll try and like find a chart, but I mean, you could look up some of the model numbers we've been talking about if you really want to, I guess. But okay, so so before we get too nerded out on this, I guess, well, let's go back a little to basics. So there's all these terms that flew around in the beginning with the pandemic. So you were talking about how both you and I were like, oh yeah, no PPE and N95s and, and all this other terminology we we used within our professions almost stayed like in-house. And then all of a sudden, everybody wanted to know how the hell they can get their hands on an N95 because all they heard was, oh, that's what the hospital wears. This is the best fit, short of ordering their own pappers, right? And so I don't know about you, but I had a lot of people, a lot being more than none, coming up to me or messaging me and saying, you know, I have an N95 that I use for yard work and like sending me a picture of it and saying, you know, do you think... Well, actually, when it first started and the PPE push was going on, I had a lot of people, and I'm going to actually name one of them right now, TJ, who is also one of the people that helps me with editing episodes uh, frequently in the last year or so. He actually was amazingly generous and sent me some of his 8210 3, 3Ms that you know, I was fortunate enough to have fit tested already for them and they fit my face. But I, I had a lot of people like pouring in saying, how can I get you, me specifically, which felt very overwhelming because a lot of these people, you know, I've literally only communicated via the internet and then asking, how do I get your hospital? How can I help? How can I do this and that? What is an N95? Will this work? And like people just trying to send as much to us including you. I mean, you were also in that sort of realm where I know you were working, like you said, with with your lab's capabilities on how they can help. And so everybody all of a sudden was like, well, what's, what's an N95 and why, why is it so important? So we kind of briefly touched on it, but the biggest thing with an N95 is the fact that it allows you to breathe while also making sure that you don't inhale these very contagious, very not good <laughs> particles that transmit what could be sometimes devastating viruses. And, you know, it's TB. So before COVID hit, the only time that I really wore an N95 in the ER in a nursing role is if there was a suspicion that my patient had TB. So what it used to be, now it varied from facility to facility in these before times so long ago. I'm not that old, guys, but I am old in healthcare world because it always is changing. So when I first was a nurse, I had a job in Southwest on the border of Mexico and the United States. And due to that being a bigger population of people who have sometimes latent TB, which is, again, we're going to have probably our own episode on TB because you guys... There's TB, there's latent TB, there's active TB, there's all kinds of TB. TB or not TB? That is the question. There we go. That's going to be our episode title. Maybe. I don't know. Anyways, so we would, we would always have this very kind of not rigorous screening criteria, but I realized when I moved to a different state that this wasn't across the board. So it was very endemic to that area. And we would have to screen these people and ask them, you know, do you have X, Y, and Z in terms of the symptoms that we look out for that might indicate somebody has had a, a TB um, exposure or or they might be presenting TB uh, symptoms? And I mean, the obvious one being, you know, coughing up blood. <laughs> We'd be like, okay, no, all right, everyone has to have an N95 to take care of this patient. Now, in the before times, you had these N95s, you'd go in, you'd do your stuff, you'd wear your PPE, you take your PPE off, including your N95, and you throw it in the trash. One time, one use, disposable. Oh, the good old days of 
2020 before. And, and I'm sure you're similar in some ways to what you would do. Like once you're done with your project for that day, it goes in the trash. Not even, it would be like, I would spend, I would spend, you know, an hour in the lab in the morning to set something up. And then I throw out my N95 and go to like a different section of the lab where I didn't need it. And then, you know, two hours later, I'd go back in and wear one. I mean, I might go through like three a day and like no one would blink. Okay. So you're similar. Yeah. You're similar. Once you leave that area, you, your N95 gets tossed. And that's how it used to be for basically all of us across the board. Yeah. And there were no limits on it. There was no, yeah. It was, there was no rationing. No, if anything, they wanted you to always be sure that you felt safe. It was a and, new one. Yeah. Like if you open, when you would open the packaging, like you had to really look at it carefully to make sure it was good. Yeah. Like there was, and there was no issue of like, if you had any doubt, just toss it, grab a new one, you know, it was grab like a new one. Exactly. And with the N95s too, we would get fit tested. So you go to, and this isn't just for different facilities. You would get fit tested even in a facility you've been at for like years. You know, one of the things as an offshoot, as a little uh, side quest, TB testing, when I was on that border hospital, we did it every three to six months for staff at that time. And then I moved a little bit north of the border and the hospital that I moved to still, I was still in the Southwest region, but the hospital I moved to, I was like, Oh, do you guys get TB tested like every three or six months? And they looked at me and they're like, no, why would we do that? We don't see TB up here. So it was very interesting geographically what hospitals do or did at that time in order to ensure their staff was safe against potential contracting TB. But one of the biggest weapons that we have, and in fact, all you have at the, in terms of until you know what it is, is your N95. So every year, at least annually, or unless you had uh, like major weight changes, you would get fit tested in the hospital for uh, making sure your seal is correct on your facilities N95s. So the only time that would ever change would be, again, if you had like a, a weight change because your face, sometimes, you know, the seal will be different than if you're losing or gaining weight. Unfortunately, it's something that happens. And I mean, due to whatever was going on, you might need to get a different size in order to get a proper seal. And then also they would do it. They do it annually. They do it if you have major weight changes. And then they also would do it if there was a supply chain change, which rarely happened in the before times rarely happened. Uh, hospitals had enough, they kept their orders up, and you just didn't go through N95s like we are currently. So you never really had an issue of needing to change to a new model unless all of a sudden the hospital was like, we're going to set fire to the N95s and also order a different companies. So really, you wouldn't see uh, fit testing as often as you have to now. It was a very similar process for us, like uh, working in the lab. Every six months, I did TB testing to make sure that I hadn't inadvertently caught TB. And then we did the fit testing annually. And they always made us have like a primary and a backup that we were already approved for. But just as you said, you know, the idea was if there was a shipping issue with one, you had a backup. But that never happened. It was more that, you know, if whoever was in charge of stocking the supply room forgot to bring the box in, you know, and you had a backup. Or they just like ordered it the wrong whatever. And so for like that month. Actually, this is perhaps worth mentioning. Sometimes you'll see N95 masks that have a valve 
And I remember once they accidentally ordered the version that had a valve. Yeah, which like we were all like, I don't know about this valve. (laughs) And now one of the big things, like one of my big and 95 questions that I would love to have answers is like, we've all been advised against valved masks like out in the community because it's the sort of thing where the valve will protect you but every time you breathe out it forces open the valve and so if you are covid infected you wearing that n95 is not at all that valve n95 is not going to protect the people around you it kind of negates it yeah yeah but what if like just a simple piece of scotch tape shut that valve up and suddenly you have a perfectly good n95 right so i mean this is where I feel like there's been a lot of things in the pandemic where like a simple fix could help. <laughs> it's that whole necessity being the mother of invention thing definitely in play because for a while, one of the N95s I did use was a valved one. And so the way that we did as healthcare providers in order to feel safe for ourselves as much as for our patients was that we wore the N95, we had a simple the disposable mask over it. And then we had a face shield that came all the way over our face. So I guess in that respect, you're hoping that if any particulates get through face shield, simple mask into you, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's the Swiss cheese model. I don't know if you're familiar with the Swiss cheese model. I've seen that that diagram exit. Yeah. Really and this is, goes into why we, we double mask now. Exactly. You know, and, is that no, none of these things is 100% perfect, but by layering them, combination, you get yourself yeah. a complete slice of cheese with no holes. Exactly. And that's the big major goal that you want, I think, during any pandemic. Oh, right. Oh, right. We're talking about pandemics. Yeah. Now you got me thinking about cheese. But so beyond TB, I I really didn't use an N95. And then it was just like, I remember H1N1, but I was actually in nursing school for that. So we just got the vaccines as student nurses and they just told us like wear a mask. And, And H1N1 was a little bit different with transmission. So kind of on a different spectrum. And SARS never really made the jump to America like they thought it would. So that kind of like didn't really prepare us. The big thing was when I was in, this is really bad. I can't remember it offhand, but I'm just going to blame that uh, time is irrelevant. But when Ebola hit, mm-hmm. quote unquote, you were right, hit. 2014. Yeah, yeah. Yes. All right. Good. Because I did a two-part episode on that. Guys, you can listen to that somewhere in my archives. Scroll on back. And I remember getting training for PPE on that. So prior to this pandemic, the biggest training I ever had for pandemic anything was Ebola. And I remember that specifically because it was a whole in-service. It was actually like putting on the gear that we had in the hospital and being graded on it. And it was repeated. And this is how you would have to take off stuff. And this is what would happen if you have a hole in this, you know? And it was like, it was that whole if you prepare yourself for it, you don't have to get ready for it because you're always going to be in that state of being prepared. And so everybody was ready for what could have been a very horrible outcome. And we definitely lucked out in America on that. And in a way, I guess it was a good thing it did come to America because without that being over here, I don't think we would have gotten that vaccine out half as fast as we did. And that has totally changed the landscape. 
for the DRC over in Africa. So go read about that. It's vaccine save lives. Anyways, wouldn't that be hor- horrible if, like, if people listen to this and then they heard us say, like, vaccines don't do shit? But <laughs> <laughs> no, that's definitely no. Uh, we are very pro vaccine here. Very, very much so. One quick point I just want to make is I know we've sort of been jumping back and forth between like viruses and bacteria here when we when we jump between things like SARS and Ebola, which are caused by viruses, and then TB, which is caused by bacteria. And I feel like this is a good moment to sort of talk about how the N95 works. Because I know, like I, I, when I was in grad school, sort of just had a loose understanding that like, oh yeah, there's like the physical, like, pore size of like certain either bacteria will be too big to fit through the pores but you know oxygen can still flow through right we we did that very basic like n95 makes it so that you can breathe out but you don't breathe anything in but there's a little bit more to it (laughs) yeah and i also was aware of the fact that i shouldn't let it get wet because that would that would make it not really work anymore. But I didn't necessarily understand like why it wouldn't work anymore when it was wet. But since so since the pandemic times, and as I've you know, me and friends and family have all had more questions about N95s. I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole of understanding that there's actually like an electrostatic charge that is part of what is helping stop some particles. And there's a really good YouTube video that I will recommend that we add to the show notes on this because it's something that I didn't know. And then, and so that's part of why you don't want to get it wet is because you don't want to interrupt those like electrostatic things. But, but what's super interesting, and I would love to hear you talk about this, Kim, is that now we are finding ways that you can kind of reuse N95s safely and still maintain a good number of efficacy I mean, you know, a good integrity of the mask and that even as the electrostatic charge might diminish, like the mask can still be quite good. And and part of why these things are able to work for both bacteria and viruses, you know, both of these things are being carried in those respiratory droplets that we touched on earlier. So sometimes there's questions where like the size of the virus itself in isolation would be small enough to get through the pores in an N95, but when it's contained in the droplet, then it's too big to get through. That was like a common question I got was like, oh, but isn't the virus so small that it's going to get through? You're never really going to be presented with the problem of stopping the virus itself. You're always going to be stopping those, those aerosolized particles that have, you got the saliva, you got all that good stuff. Well, and that's the whole thing. So when we talk about the N and the 95 part, I mean, just to break it down, you know, the whole thing with the N is that N-rated respirators, and I had to pull this one up so I got this right. So N-rated respirator masks are not resistant to oil-based substances. So if you go into the whole thing with like PPE, and as you were talking about, the static electric charge is literally woven in to these masks during manufacturing. And it's a whole sort of like two-step system in terms of like a two-step safety guard for trapping these particles and one of them being the charge. So it's all a bunch of things that can get a little techy. Yeah, but it's interesting because it helps understand like how many different ways there are of using these masks. And why we can reuse them. 
which is interesting because it's like, so did we, were we unknowingly really wasting a lot of stuff? I mean, and, and to back it up though, I think they said that originally N95s could be like, they were rated to still have the same efficacy after like 36 hours or something to that effect. Somebody told us there was a nurse manager. Maybe she was saying something. I'm not saying all nurse managers are trying to, never mind. I'm not going to get into that. But she was trying to look up like, what did the research say before the pandemic, right? What did it say about how long could an N95, could it be reused? If it did, how long would it still be good? And I feel like I I just remember like a 36 hour mark is what they said. And, And when you go into the 95 part, it's a 95 rating means that the mask will filter out about 95% of those relevant particles. So that's why it's it's so important, you know, that we have at least like a 95% rating, right? And I do think that N99s exist, but they're, you know, a little harder to find. And it's also worth mentioning all of this is like the U.S. rating system. And I know... This is true. There's like the FFPs is like the European grading system, I believe. Oh, I bet you that. I mean, a lot of it breaks down to like the particle size and and that's what they're looking at. And we, and it breaks down into all these microns. There's like the KN95s are sort of been like the the poor man's N95. (laughs) like. But that's the one that you can wear without necessarily needing to have a fit test because that was the big thing for us in healthcare. So a lot of people went one of two ways when this first started. I have a bunch of N95s laying around. Can I donate them to the hospital? Or I have a bunch of N95s. Can I hoard them all? And will it protect me and my family? So if you think about it, if you put an N95 that's supposed to be used on an adult, on a child, is it going to give you the same sort of seal? No, it's not going to. And there's a reason why we do fit testing. It's not just for OSHA stuff. It's literally to make sure that things fit to our faces so that we reduce the risk of getting this disease, getting this virus or transmitting it unknowingly to somebody else, right? So when people were saying stuff about, can I do this with this? Or if I wear an N95, it's, 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 it's as good or something like that. Or, or what I should say is when people were saying, how can I help? How can I help? How do I make an N95? It's like, it goes beyond that. So New Balance, I remember reading, was trying to figure out how to make N95s. And my big thing was like, that in theory sounds amazing, right? Like, let's turn our whole entire manufacturing stuff into helping out the the healthcare for, uh, workforce and, or supply. And in theory, it sounds great. But if you were to roll that all out, you number one, have to test it. You number two, have to make a new sort of fit testing to make sure it's still going to be effective for healthcare workers. And number three, you'd have to go and make sure to fit test more like millions and millions of healthcare providers just to see if it works. And I think they very quickly realized that might be a little bit over their head. So the KN95 is such a great intermediate because it gives you a little bit of like both in terms of you don't necessarily need a fit test for it, but you get a similar sort of protection as you would an N95. I feel like, you know, I was introduced to the KN95 as sort of in my attempts to get N95s from 
like going to the grocery store and things like that and not being able to get the premium masks because they were, you know, rightfully going to healthcare providers. But, but I was able to find the KN95. And so I tried it and I've now tried two different models of KN95 and I am like finding some fit my face better than others, but I feel like it's just like you're getting it. It's like this nice middle ground where it feels way more protective than like the blue surgical masks that we're all familiar with. But it's also like not as intense and restrictive uh, as like my old aura that I used to wear. So it's, it's something that I can wear every day without concern that I'm like taking away a mask from someone who needs it more. And I, I think, I don't know if, I'm not sure of the like supply and demand science of why the KN95s are easier to find than the N95s, but um, I'm certainly glad we have them as an option right now. Yeah, and I I think that I don't know. I don't remember ever hearing about KN95s prior to this, so I don't know if they've been around or if this was just a something that companies might have realized kind of like New Balance did real quick that, okay, we can't do N95s, but maybe we can get to this middle ground with our research and with the scientific community. I'm pretty sure the KN95 is the like Chinese rating systems. Like the way we said like N95 is the US, FFP is the European. And so then the KN is the Chinese one. And I don't, I, I think that probably with whatever slight differences there are in the requirements for how they're manufactured, it may just be easier to manufacture the KN95s. That's my guess. I recall reading that like a lot of the N95s require this type of like blown plastic polymer that is like technical, like really, really difficult to make. And there's only so many places that can make it. So even though there's this like urgent need to ramp up the production of the N95s, it's sort of not very simple. Like you're saying, it's not something that like New Balance can necessarily do. Right. And, and I mean, it's very noble that they want it to. And I think a lot of people are like, yes, please help us out. And then it became very um, apparent pretty fast probably to them that they couldn't do that type of protection, but they could do something else. And I mean, okay, so aside, let's with N95s and stuff, aside from that, I mean, just wearing a mask in general, I just, I don't think I've really, I've talked about it on Twitter, but I haven't talked about it on the podcast. Why haven't we been wearing masks in general? We have barely, barely seen the flu at all during peak flu season. I haven't seen it. And maybe I have a wooden table. I'm not even going to knock on it. Okay. Because I mean, people are for the first time really in this mode of actually wearing masks more regularly than I think we ever have, at least for Americans. And you talk to anybody who has done this long enough prior to pandemic status going on, and we're all just like, it makes sense. We know why we're not seeing it as much with RSV, with the flu, with all of these respiratory illnesses. But it's so weird because has this been the fix all along? (laughs) Like, oh my gosh, all we had to do was just kind of maybe harp on that a little bit better during the flu season to wear a mask. And, and that, that was it, you know, in terms of, you know, I have a lot of colleagues who are also in this similar state of like hushed tones of you guys 
have you seen any flu this year? And it's like a, you almost don't want to say it out loud, but I am. And it's interesting because it's like, and that's just simple masks. That's just a face covering. So if you, when you go into like the whole N95 thing, when this was first starting out, it was weird. Like I'll get a little personal on it. Like the first time NBR has been doing like this thing about, you know, the moment where you realized things were shifting and that normal is now something of the past and a new normal is being born. And like, what was your moment? And I briefly shared a little bit about it on Twitter, but I guess I could do it now. And it really was like up until the current COVID pandemic status going on, I really didn't use an N95 except for TB stuff. And TB didn't seem overwhelming because there are treatment options. So even on the off chance that somehow I ended up contracting it, it wasn't going to be the end of the world. People live with TB in terms of like, they recover from it, there's treatment for it. TB does not have to be a death sentence like it once was back in the day. Again, we're going to have <laughs> probably an episode about it. It was weird, like with the first COVID positive patient that I had, I double, triple checked my N95 so many times, and I've never done that before in my life. Up until then, and maybe I can disclose what some other, I know, healthcare providers have done, the fit test was always inconvenient. And you always were like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, how, how fast can I get through this? My mask is fine. And you go on to going back on the floor. But it was like that moment, I remember like getting all my stuff on. I was like, God, I, I hope this is the right seal. Like, I really hope this 95% is going to hold. Like, come on, 95%. There was nothing like in terms of a safety net. Like, all you were hearing was the bad stuff. All you were hearing was everything coming out of Italy and then soon to be New York. And it was just so overwhelming from a healthcare provider standpoint of, holy shit, if I get this, I might die. Like, and that's it. And it was this very sobering, like really weird mental state as you're like putting on all your, your gown and stuff, your gown that you're like, this looks like a trash bag, but okay, I'm not going to think about that. And yeah, I'll put on my little goggles that kind of have maybe some sort of shield to them, which now a lot of us wear almost like a modified version of police riot gear um, into some rooms. But it was this weird moment where, you know, I knew the mask was the big thing at that point. Like, God, I hope my seal is okay. And up until then, I get fit tested for different assignments because their hospitals used to different N95s. This was even before COVID. So I would get fit tested pretty regularly, almost every three to six months. And again, I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. I've used this model before. I know my size. But the hospital I was at, I didn't trust the, their duck bills because they had duck bill ones. And like, I save all my N95s because I know they fit my face. And I remember getting my N95, I think it was the the blue one. It was the 3M that was the blue one. And I was like, I'm going into this room with this one on because I did not trust the duck bill at all. And I, I reused that blue one before I think it was like, suggested by that CDC thing, you know, to reuse it. I was like, I'm holding on to this. I don't, I don't know why, but I just, I need that safety net. That was like my little Linus blanket. And uh, yeah, it was this weird mental state. I remember like getting out of the room and being like, I don't know. It was just, it was weird. I'm probably still trying to process it in some ways. I mean, you'll probably be processing this time for the rest of your life. I mean, I'm looking forward to it. It's great. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it really fell into like that moment before I stepped in that room where I was like, this mask is like my lifeline. This is all I've got. 
because at this point, I know it's transmitted through droplet, through particles. And this is like, I want the one that's going to be, I want this on my face, the one that I know it's got a good seal, the one that I could work in for a long amount of time. And then I had my actual COVID exposure to a, like a month later. And it was because I got sloppy with my N95. Up until then, I had been the one kind of nurse that in the ER, I wore an N95 all of my shift. I didn't care what you were here for. I'm wearing an N95. And then it was like the one time I didn't do it for one patient. It was the one time I had a COVID exposure. <laughs> but I mean, a lot of us in healthcare can tell you like in those first few weeks to months, as weird as it was to shove your N95 into your paper bag sack that was CDC approved, it was like your lifeline. It was your Linus blanket where you were just like, this is the thing that's keeping me upright and I'm going to guard it. Like it, one of our nurses was in a room one time and like, I heard the snap break like of their N95 cause they had been using it for months. And it was like this look, it, like they like stopped what they were doing and looked up and it was just like, get out of the room, just go. Like it was one of those weird moments where you're just like, go, go, go. Like you're no longer protected. You're vulnerable in a way. And it's just like, get out of here. <laughs> It was this weird moment. And then I saw them in the break room stapling the strap back because it was the one that they felt like that was the seal that they needed. And they were like, I don't trust the ones that we have right now. I'd rather staple this back together. And I looked at it and I was like, there's like five staples in here. And that nurse was just like, this is the one that like I trust. And until we get more of these, I'm writing this one out. And they eventually did get more. And actually I had an extra. So I was like, please, please just use this one. Like, I'd rather you be here with something that is new than stapling this. Like it's a grade school project. Well, and so one question, have you always just like you, you reuse until it's you know past the point of no repair or have you had any of your jobs like done some sort of sterilization procedure? Cause I know I've seen papers where they try like, dry like autoclaving or things like that like the uv light so when it first started they had they had us reusing it and then two or three days later they had this new process where at the end of your shift you can put it into this bin and then it would be sterilized quote unquote and then you'd be able to get a new mask the next shift but it's not labeled to you so it was weird because I just was like, I don't feel comfortable with this unless it was mine and I saw it being sterilized. And it was one of those things where it's almost like when your car goes through a car wash and you're not in the car, like you want to like walk next to it to make sure your car's okay. Like I, I want to see this baby from start to finish. Yeah. Cause even though like scientifically they would all be clean, there's just some, something very human about like wanting yours. Back. I want what's mine. Yeah, exactly. And you couldn't mark on it because that might ruin whatever. And you couldn't bring something outside. Like even if you were like, oh, let me put a piece of tape on it. Well, that might ruin everything else in the whole entire like sterilization process. Right. So I was just like, or I could just put it back in my paper bag sack and put it in my locker and then hope for the best. (laughs) And that totally works. So, I mean, I know it's been a little while since I've looked into the science on this, but I recall pretty early on, you know, we learned that the virus doesn't survive very long on surfaces. And so, you know, just leaving your mask be and not touching it is a pretty good way to just let whatever virus might be on the exterior die. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's, that's also too, uh, some people were saying, you know, if I like leave my N95, like out in the sun for a while, just, and just like people, people, not healthcare people, they're like, is it okay to leave it out in the sun? And I think eventually we were like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's going to be fine too. So it was interesting to see all those charts come out about like how long it survives on different surfaces. And there was some reassurance with it. And I mean, now it's a year later. And I mean, we're still, I still have a whole entire treasure trove of N95s that fit my face. I reuse N95s less. I still do, but the rules are a little different because our supply chain is quote unquote better, question mark. So the way that it was before was that you kind of wrote out your N95 until the bitter end, or like if it got visibly wet or soiled, or if you were like in a, just like if you had a known COVID patient, you're not going to go take off that mask and then like go to a different room. You know what I mean? Like you're not going to go from a room where you took care of a COVID patient to a room where you, you have somebody who's here for a laceration. So you would fix it accordingly to an extent. So this is, there's some, some things that it was like, I don't know if that was quite the right thing to do, but okay. But I mean, sometimes you would end up finding yourself like, okay, because I, I, like I said, I would wear an N95 throughout my whole shift uh, at, at one point. And if I took care of a COVID patient, I would take care, I would take it off. Like in terms of after I'm done with that room, that goes in the trash because it's just, I'm not going to risk carrying it from to another. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then also like taking it off and washing my hands, you know, reduces the risk of transmission to myself. So (laughs) I'm not going to risk that happening or to my coworkers. So that would get trashed. But then at one point, I mean, we were seeing so much COVID patients that they did make us do face shields. And part of the reason I think they made us do the face shields was because their thinking was that if you were taking care of known COVIDs, you would go into like COVID room. Like once you had a known COVID patient, you kind of inherited a couple of the other COVID patients that might be also like in your zone so that you could just kind of stretch out, you know, your N95s use because as horrible as it sounds, how much of a difference is it going to make if you have three COVID positive patients that you don't change your N95 between taking care of three known COVID positive patients? And I, I hate saying it that way because, you know, in the before times, it wouldn't matter. You would take it off in that patient's room and then put a new one on for your next COVID positive patient. But there's some definite habits that have been adjusted. And I don't know, I don't know if that's good overall in terms of like in the long run. I worry a little bit about what are we going to do when things are a little bit more contained in terms of breaking our habits, you know? And I see myself kind of, now that I've been fully vaccinated, not to brag, but I'm going to brag. <laughs> I see myself also, yeah, of course, I wear an N95 into confirmed COVID patient, positive patient rooms and, and people under investigations or PUIs. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, is there going to be like a future sort of thing where, you know, where it's kind of like the flu where, you know, you're vaccinated and if you have somebody who has the flu, who has a known confirmed flu, you just put on a simple mask, like the disposable mask, and you just walk into their room and maybe you'll have eye protection on. And I really don't see, and a lot of us in healthcare don't see us not having the mask on in general. We foresee that that's going to be part of P 
peak seasons regardless. Yeah, that's just going to be something that sticks around and probably should have. I'm not going to lie. Probably should have been there before. Yeah, just the way gloves are a thing. Exactly. And the time before gloves was a real thing. Medics used to not really wear gloves. It really was only for like procedures that you would wear gloves. And then, you know, a whole crisis of the AIDS crisis changed a lot of that thinking. Some of it from a place of ignorance and some of it from the place of actual like scientific research. So gloves became a thing. And in the same way, we were pretty much resigned to the fact that masks will become a thing for healthcare and for uh, research stuff. And I, I don't see that going away. But it's the N95s that I'm like, okay, if we're all vaccinated in healthcare, and then maybe in the future, you know, maybe we'll need to get boosters if there's like, a certain variant or something that's going around. Are we going to need N95s? Is it going to be like a TB situation, you know, where if a person's presenting symptoms, you wear the N95, but it's okay if you have, if you're vaccinated and you have a simple mask on and as a person under investigation, who's maybe not quite symptomatic, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if we're going to have to rely as heavily on N95s like we do for TB patients. So maybe it'll be like, you know, with TB patients, you always wear an N95 in the room. And then is it going to be the same way with confirmed or presumptive COVID patients? Are you always only going to have to wear it in the room? And then you could take it off, wash your hands and go to the next room. I'm hoping that's the future because that would kind of be almost like a semblance of normal. And hopefully you get back to that. Here's your N95. You use it for this patient in this one room. You th- throw it away and then you leave the room, You know, wash your hands, leave the room. And then, okay, they got on the call light, you get a new mask, like that sort of thing. But right now, I s- we're still in that phase where it's like, well, we would prefer if you put it back in your paper bag and you keep that mask and you keep using it for all of your shift. So it's, it's, it's changed a little bit where it's not just like use it for months, like a lot of us did. Mm-hmm. But there's still, it sounds like there's still a fear that at any moment there could be a shortage again. Or- there is. And in a lot of places I've worked, there's very obvious things on their whiteboard of here's how many supplies we have currently of X, Y, and Z. And it's almost like this like cognizant sort of thing of like, it could get really shitty again, super fast. (laughs) And it's interesting. I don't know. It's weird to be like recording stuff and like actively living through it. Cause I'm like, I don't know if this will age well. Time will tell. I mean, I think, I think you've hit on a lot of really reasonable thoughts. And one thing that I'm thinking about is like in a perfect world, some sort of engineering changes in hospitals could also be really helpful. So like I know in the lab, all of the rooms had like negative air pressure such that like all the airflow was flowing into the areas that had bacteria that as opposed to out. This way, like anytime I opened a, a door, let's say, if I had any aerosolized TB in the room with me, it wouldn't follow me when I moved to the outer rooms. And and so I imagine the hospitals that are properly equipped to handle infectious diseases are you know built with a similar system of airflow. And that is like getting back to that Swiss cheese model of like having, you know, the, the airflow on its own wouldn't be enough to like contain COVID spread from room to room or something like that. But when you layer the proper airflow with the steady supply of N95s, like suddenly you have like a pretty safe situation, right? So I'm curious if you've been working at places where those kind of engineering 
uh, innovations are in place, or I imagine a lot of places that, you know, didn't necessarily have like a state-of-the-art infectious disease unit suddenly had to try to function as one. And my, my hope is that there will now be some institutional memory at a lot of these places to say, okay, this is, this is what we did when COVID happened. These were the things that we could have done better. And now we're going to have, you know, a big red binder on the shelf. And if this ever happens again, we, we have a game plan. We're not going to scramble. So I I think it's coming. I think there's a lot of changes I've seen. So I've been, since we've hit pandemic status, I went from working a pretty busy ER to going to another busy ER to going to a rural hospital to now a moderately busy ER. And it's weird because I'm going in different regions where it's not necessarily like overrun like it is, you know, in that New York sense when everything happened. I mean, going from different communities in terms of like city size, I guess is what I should say. So I worked in a moderately sized city to a more metropolitan, bigger sized city to a very small rural town to another bigger city where I'm at. And I can tell you in the rural town, they had their shit together, surprisingly, but not surprisingly. So it's a very small population. If one of, if these people, if somebody in this household gets it, it can set off a whole thing. And that's what happened when I was there is that they were getting a really bad surge and they completely retooled every single room that they had to have the capability of becoming negative pressure if needed. Oh, that's really cool. Yes. So they had that. And then they just had these systems in place of like, this is what happens if somebody comes in, you keep them in this section and then they go to this section to wait for results. If this is positive, they go over here. Like it was very, very cognizant of exposure, containment, exposure, containment, exposure, containment, and trying to minimize everybody's movements to minimize spread. By the time I left, now this is when I got there because they were getting their first surge. By the time I left and I had to take three month contracts for the most part, I could tell this town was getting a little bit lax because they had survived the first surge. And that was a little bit disheartening because yes and no, because there was also a bigger push in the community to get the vaccine. And a lot of these people have been there their whole life, which makes for an older population being more predominant in this region. And so they were the ones who were getting the vaccine. So that was very reassuring. But at the same time, just because that population is able to get the vaccine and does, doesn't mean that, again, with the Swiss cheese model, right? It doesn't mean that you stop doing the other steps to minimize exposure and spread. And that's what it felt like was going on when I left, is that the younger population was getting to this point of being complacent. And it was a little distressing (laughs) to take care of younger patients test them. And then a lot of them coming back positive. And they're just like, oh, I don't know how that could have happened. And you're like, yeah, I think I know how it happened. Because when I drive into town, no one's wearing a mask in the bowling alley that's packed. So it was kind of like that hospital had to adapt because they are the only hospital for a very small community and they need to keep these people alive, right? This, is their, this isn't just patients. When you work in a bigger city, 
you might not see those people ever again because they might be passing through or something to that effect. But in a small community, this is their family they're taking care of. And for some of these people, it is literally like they have seen some of these people from birth over in the OB, like literally being born to now having kids of their own and bringing in their children. And it's just like a different feel. And if you've followed me on Twitter, you know, I've had a little bit of other things going on in in my more rural assignment, but on the hospital side of things, that's a family. That was one of the more like family, we take care of our community sort of feels. And when COVID hit them, that hospital shaped up. I can't tell, I can't say for certain that the uh, staff there really fell into it in terms of shaping up themselves uh, with regards to their own practices outside of work. And I, and I won't comment to that, but at least in the hospital, they were pretty on top of it. Personal beliefs and views aside in terms of colleagues and coworkers, that's a whole nother story. But in the hospital, they had safeguards, they had a system. It was one of the more put together systems that I'd seen. We would get EMS calls and EMS was very good about being like, this is what we suspect. And if it went that way, there was a whole different protocol set than, you know, if it went the other way. So it was just interesting to, to be able to work in those different environments and then see in a bigger city, there almost seems to be like still scrambling for protocols. Like it only took one surge in a rural setting for these protocols for every room to be able to turn into a negative pressure room if needed in a certain wing for them to bring in these filters that stay in the units just as just they're going 24 seven. You know, the things that you see in sometimes restaurants now just to keep, you know, their businesses and their employees safe. That's what they jumped on in this hospital that's smaller versus like this bigger city hospital I've worked in where Yes, there's a different wing you can get brought into, but you could still expose like six people in that time. And I don't know, it's just like looking back on it, I'm just like, you know, there were some pros and cons and how some hospitals have handled things. And now that we're in this kind of vaccine push area, it's going to be interesting to see how things are going to follow through or roll out. And like you said, what is going to be the things that we're going to learn from in healthcare in terms of safeguards. And I do remember in my episodes that I did about Ebola, I said something at the end of of the second episode about how working in a hospital and seeing how a hospital tries to prepare its employees for a pandemic, I could confidently say there's no way in hell the US would be prepared for another pandemic. And then fast forward to, you know, however many months later, anybody I feel like could see that. Anybody who's worked within science and healthcare in the last, like, ever since Ebola probably could see that we couldn't do it. I don't think we could have seen how badly we fell through. I mean, honestly, as a nation, I don't think anybody could foresee just how bad things got real fast. But I don't think that it's too surprising how piss poor it was. Maybe the level of how bad it is or was is, I don't know, might be the shocking part, but I don't know. I, I mean, what would, what is your takeaways sort of with on the research side of things? Like, did you kind of do that whole like open mouth moment of, holy shit, like we are fucking up really bad. <laughs> Sorry, dad. I know I'm cussing a lot, but I had that moment where I was just like, oh my God, we have no idea what we're doing because we're not turning it over to science. 
Yeah. Or, and even, I feel like, so in all of my, you know, infectious disease training and classes, I always heard like the big one is coming and we're not ready. And, and it was usually that sentiment was thinking about like the next big flu, right? Like bird flu, swine flu, etc. I don't think there was enough knowledge outside of like the small group of folks who were studying SARS that, you know, that we should have coronaviruses on our radar so much. I certainly didn't really have coronavirus on my radar before this year. Arguably, I had, you know, taken one virology course in graduate school, but still. And so I think as this, you know, story was developing in like late 2019, it was sort sort of the vibe among scientists was, okay, we should be paying attention to this, but we don't have to panic just yet. You know, don't don't freak out just yet. But like we are keeping an eye on this, right? And I remember the sort of the tone was everyone should try to stay calm right now. We don't really know what's gonna happen. And then and then all of a sudden March it was just like, oh yep, no, we do panic now. <laughs> and then like, you know, I actually, I still remember sitting at dinner, you know, at a restaurant in person with your brother and his wife. And we were about to see them off after they had come into town for grandma's birthday party. And we were watching the TV in the restaurant and they were announcing that March Madness had been canceled and that Tom Hanks had it. And uh, I just remember thinking to myself like, oh man, if they catch it on the plane going home or like, oh no, like, you know, like, what have we done <laughs> kind of thing? Um, thank God you guys all got home. Okay. But it, that, that was like, that was right in the peak of the, like toilet paper was starting to run out. <laughs> you know, it was like, we were all sort of doing the, the things you do when there's like a big snowstorm, <laughs> you know, like I gotta get the bread and milk. We were all kind of doing that. So, so it was this weird sense of, even though I was in the scientific community, and, and had this sense of like, there is a big one that is going to come in our lifetimes. I don't think there was ever like a, yeah, but it, it's not really going to happen. You, you know, there was sort of this feeling of like, just stay, stay calm, make sure everyone understands to, you know, follow this story, but stay calm. Um, and then all of a sudden it was just like, no, we're not staying calm. I think if you were to speak to someone who works in the coronavirus field, they would probably have a different sense of, you know, there, there's some really interesting stories out there about the team involved in like getting the genome of the virus publicly accessible so that vaccines could get into development. You know, a, a lot of that was starting to happen already in like January, February, um, before people in the tuberculosis community like myself were, were learning anything which I think is kind of a reflection on how specialized science gets. But yeah, I, th I think my, my big jaw-dropping moment was like while out to dinner with a cousin, just like anybody else, which is kind of wild uh, to reflect on. I mean, and, and there was that little hint of the, oh, masks are getting harder to order thing. But it was just like, it was just a lot of feeling stunned and speechless. And then another really memorable moment for me was that, so I had just defended my PhD on March 3rd. And then maybe like a week later, my boss was like, you know, you don't have to commute into the city anymore. I'm not so much worried about you. I, I'm worried about you 
bringing virus to your grandmother or your brother. And for the listeners, you know, my brother and Kim's other first cousin has Down syndrome and lives in a group home. So, you know, congregate setting. Um, so, you know, my boss was worried about them. And so I literally like, I cleaned out my desk earlier than I had planned to. And I brought everything back from Manhattan across you know, the Hudson. And I literally, I normally would take the bus between Manhattan and New Jersey because it's much cheaper, but I didn't want to be in a crowded bus. So I literally like, I walked to the ferry <laughs> and carrying like all my mementos from graduate school and took the ferry home because it was open air and, uh, and, you know, and privileged to be able to have that alternate route home because there's so many people who don't have the option of not taking the cheapest possible transport. Right. So that, that was a very scary thing of having your boss say, I don't think you should commute anymore. And sort of instead of like a fun bidding farewell to graduate school, it was this kind of tense, okay, I'm going to hope I don't catch the virus on the subway on my way home. And then I'm going to take the ferry with all my stuff. Uh, So that's sort of how it went for me. Yeah. And now it's just weird to think about. It's been a year, but it feels like it's been like a bajillion years. (laughs) Yeah. And it's also crazy. Like as I recount that story, I feel my whole like shoulders tensing, you know, it's like, you get the emotional, it's still that same response. Like you heard me talking about, you know, trying to like figuring out, like going into a room. It's like, I have to take a couple of moments. Cause I could, I could remember it. I, I remember it very, it's one of those indelible moments in my life that I'll be like, yeah, I know exactly what I felt in that moment. Yeah. It's, it's another, you know, where were you when nine eleven happened or like, or the way our, our parents had the, where were you when Kennedy was shot? <laughs> Well, and that's kind of the cool thing is, I guess we can end it on this, is that having people living through a pandemic that is unlike any other pandemic ever in terms of the response, the politicizing, the global, I don't know, connection. You know what I mean? Like, this is unlike anything ever in terms of any pandemic, because we have internet and social media and things happening in real time, like literally as they're happening, it's not like this is like three days later, you're reporting it. It's very much like, this is what just happened. Like now, you know, somebody could tweet it from a lab and it goes viral, not to use that term, but I guess I will, but it catches, you know, it catches some steam. And the next thing you know, within like 15 minutes, it could be covered by CNN, you know? So I don't think we've ever had this kind of connectivity to each other, not just like personally, but in the scientific community. And I found this like kind of like this inspiring hope that I latch on to occasionally that some of my best friends, their kids are, you know, underneath the age of five. And there's a concern in that too, where I'm like, hmm, I wonder long-term fallout in terms of Mm. their psyche, but also, yeah. yeah. And, but I also wonder about some of the people who might have been a little wayward in in finding what they want to do with life and how maybe this has helped them in terms of if they're a person that's always liked science, maybe they're thinking about going into epidemiology or making the next like breakthrough in science or something to that effect. Because the mRNA side of stuff with how fast, you know, our, our vaccine came about, the science has been there for years. The results though are new in terms of like, this is a new way of doing stuff. And it's such a cool breakthrough that aside from, you know, having to live through it in real time, if I were to study it, 
five, 10 years from now, oh, I'd be geeked. So <laughs> to be like, this is so cool that they were able to make this happen so fast and with such amazing results and being in, in an incredibly safe way. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's so many breakthroughs. Yeah. Oh yeah. And there's, there's some really fascinating stories there, which we can definitely link to. For example, the two mRNAs, they work by expressing the spike protein. And one, a major hurdle with that was getting the express spike protein to maintain the proper shape or the proper conformation. And like this one team was working for years to like figure that out. And it took, it took, you know, so many tries to figure it out. And then it took so many tries to get that published because nobody really cared about coronaviruses. But thank goodness that work was done, right? Thank goodness that like grueling work was done uh, because that's, you know, the, the shoulders upon which these mRNA vaccines were made. So I think I totally echo your sentiment of, and, and I think you, I, I know you've said this before. I don't know if you've said it on the podcast, but the look for the helpers concept is just a really good way to get through this pandemic and, and think about, I mean, even just like bringing it back to N95s, look for the people who were helping figure out innovative ways to make new types or, you know, make versions that would be more accessible to the public or, you know, the people who figured out routing them to the people who needed them, all these like amazing volunteer efforts that came about that's inspiring and can help us. Well, and even now, I mean, it's the people that are volunteering at these vaccine clinics and not just medical people, just people volunteering to help out with traffic flows and coordinating things. Like these are our neighbors. These are people in our community who are, out there helping other people in the community. And that's what I've always had to stop and like take stock of when I get overwhelmed by where I am mentally in living through a pandemic. My perspective is definitely different in terms of what I do for work, but I still get overwhelmed like all of us do. And then inevitably it's almost as if like you know, it's somebody, somebody knows I need a reminder and I'll get a message from somebody else that like their dad just got the vaccine. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's kind of like, I know all of us are saying there's a finish line in sight. I've said this since the beginning that the finish line is containment, like COVID's here, like, hello, hi, it, it, it has arrived, it has moved in. But what we're moving towards is moving out of pandemic to a containment status. And that's the big thing. It's like the flu. The flu is here all year round we just have a way of containing it. And that's what we have to focus in on. And that's why it's so awesome. There's three vaccines in America right now. Like what? Within a year's time, we have three vaccines that have shown remarkable efficacy and are doing, I don't know, it's just like the highest amount, I think too, or percentage of like actually an effective vaccine, which is revolutionary in terms of vaccine science. And it also goes to show like, so this is what science can do when you actually give it funding. So that might be one of the points I want to end on is that for everybody who's been inspired and stuff and wants to know how to help, continue to support the dreams of people in your life that are in STEM, especially with it being March and it's more of a focus with women, especially like little girls out there. Let them be scientists. Let them ask questions. I did this to my mom all the time. 
our bedtime stories weren't bedtime stories. I would ask her stuff about why were things made. Now, this was before the internet. This was before Alexa. So bless my mother because she would legit look it up. We would we would go to the library and she would look up stuff with me. We would go to the encyclopedias that we had. And she and my dad were always, you know, I grew up in a household where asking questions about why wasn't annoying. And I know a lot of parents are very much at they've been stretched beyond all belief in terms of the roles they've had to play in the last year. But I hope that maybe within this, they've had some insight into what their children have interest in. And I hope that they remember that and they can kind of carry it forward because that's the people that we're going to need for the next pandemic. Because guess what? Spoiler alert, we're going to have another pandemic. And how we respond to it and what we learn from this one lays that framework for how well we can get through the next one. And hopefully what we're doing now and the things that we can do to talk about it, to inspire it, to foster those people that will be instrumental in helping us through the next one, hopefully we're we're doing what needs to be done in a good sense. And I don't know if that makes much sense. It's kind of late, but I, I mean, that's kind of where I I want people to maybe take away from this episode is that there was somebody who had to be inspired to make the framework for an N95. And there's a whole history, like I said, I'll link to in terms of how it came to be in the modern sense. But necessity is the mother invention, but also having the people that say, no, keep trying, keep trying when there's failures are just as important to those people pursuing those goals. So, I mean, that's what I feel like we need to do now even beyond science is to kind of keep supporting each other and keep telling people like, keep going for the things you're passionate about. A lot of us have discovered new passions or rekindled some lost passions in terms of things that we had interest in. And I think the lessons that we learned through living through a pandemic will definitely have an impact on all of us over our lifetime, but hopefully we can start to see a little bit more of that silver lining and the lessons that we learned from it and the things that we do in order to help out our community go beyond being in a pandemic mode. Let's lay that framework and let's see how it grows, you know? Somewhere in there, there's a point, you guys. No, that was really great. It's funny you mentioned your mom bringing you to the library, looking up things, because I, you know, my mom, being your mom's sister, did the same. Of She was always trying to nurture my curiosity. And when it seemed that science was what I kept being drawn to, like, then those were, you know, my favorite Christmas gifts were often like the nonfiction books about science. Trips to the Science Center. You got to love it. Yeah, the best. So yeah, I think I really second your sentiment about like nurturing the passions of yourself and the people around you. Cause you just, you never know when something you're passionate about will be able to help somebody else, you know, whether it's helping solve a simple problem at work or helping contribute to something greater. Um, so I think nurturing your passions is a great, great thing. I think for everything bad and hard that's happened during this last year, there's been so much good. And I always try and close it out with, with saying to people, you know, practice random, act, practice random acts of kindness, look out for each other and believe in the good. And 
sometimes I rush through it, but I mean, I, I sincerely mean it. I hope people do believe in the good. And I think I've modified it occasionally by saying, believe in the good by being the good. You don't have to do anything grandiose per se and like, you know, donate tens of thousands of dollars to whatever. Although if you, if you have the funds, absolutely go for it. But it's all about just looking out for each other. And I mean, if that's anything that we've learned in the last year, looking out for each other saves lives and will continue to do so as we push towards getting people vaccinated. Now is definitely not the time to let our guard down, even though there is a bit of a finish per se on the horizon. So continue to believe in the good and and continue to practice random acts of kindness and look out for each other. And you know what? Tip well. Maybe that should be the ending thing. Make sure you leave a good tip for people, especially local businesses. Please support local businesses out there and leave some good tips. And if you can't leave a monetary tip, promote them or somehow, you know, we we talk about it on podcasting to like, subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. But do that in your own community with the businesses that you like. Talk about them. They're working hard. They've been having a lot of setbacks. I know I follow a lot of places back home that have shut down. So, and I should, I'm sure a lot of people are going through similar stuff in terms of their own communities. And that's the thing we got to look out for each other, including our local businesses. So support your local businesses, tip well, all that good stuff and wear a mask. Wear your mask. And if you get the chance to get vaccinated, take that chance. Yes. Just a reminder that the mask is over your mouth and your nose. Yeah. Don't be chin strapping. Oh no, no, it's not a good look. No. All right. And that's going to be our episode. Thanks for having me, Kim. Thank you, cousin, who is also a friend. Hashtag cousins who are also friends. <laughs>